Welcome to Politics Done Right. I am your host, Egberto Willis. This is a progressive program that will take the mystery out of politics. This is the program that will encourage you to make sure government becomes we the people. Whether you are liberal, progressive, conservative, or otherwise, you get to air your point of view. We are an independent media outlet that, unlike mainstream media beholden to corporations, we only owe allegiance to you. Remember, you can also send me a tweet at E-G-B-E-R-T-O-W-I-L-L-I-E-S. That is at Egberto Willis. Let us engage. It is politics done right. Welcome to Politics Done Right from the studios of KPFT 90.1 FM Houston, your community radio station. We have a great program for you today. I think you guys are going to find Hal Harris a, an amazing person, the way he speaks. I mean, he's an abashedly into his own opinions and his opinions with a lot of merit. I want you guys to listen and listen in detail in the right frame of mind. Hal Harris is a no is a take no prisoners type of person. It was refreshing to interview someone who did not care what I thought or anyone for that matter on issues he is passionate about. And his issue is unabashedly black personhood and the ownership thereof. In other words, he will not allow anyone to change what the black experience has been, is, or will be. Uh, we also uh, talk about uh, we must defeat the false right-wing messaging. Those of you who have been a part of Politics Done Right, the Politics Done Right family, know that for one of my most important issues is giving everybody a voice, listening to all opinions on all sides. Canadian right-winger pseudo-intellectual Jordan Peterson discusses uh, postmodernism. Another phrase used for those of us who are progressives, right? In other words, you're progressive, you're postmodern. Who do you think you are? And, and he, he talks to us with a certain level of disdain. I want you to listen to the, the, the speech that he gave um, a few years ago, but it's something that is still making the rounds around the internet. It's important that we listen to it. And I want you to hear the soliloquy that I have in response to that particular interview that I hope tags along with that interview as we move forward. Now, we're still in a pandemic. We know Omicron is here. Uh, is Omicron going to be the one that causes the pandemic to become an endemic? Is it going to be killing that le- le- small amount of folk that it just gets into the framework of everybody gets a cold and every few people with immune disorders or otherwise die? I don't know. But there's one thing I do know. Responsibility is still not there for a sect within our society, and also gullibility is still there for another sect in our society that needs to be mitigated. So there's a lot that we're going to discuss on the program today. I think you're going to find it quite interesting. Folks, I want you guys to remember, this is the last part of the year. I want you guys to think about our media in general and how things come to you. And I want you to look at a station like KPFT a program like Politics Done Right, and realize what our purpose is. Our purpose is to, you know, the, the corporate 
the corporate corporatocracy owns the media, but that is commercial media. We are public media. So what I want you guys to think about is what a society would be if all the information you got came from a place where someone had to make a profit for what they sold. Like that, Politics Done Right on KPFT, we are here to provide you truth, only the truth that's beneficial to you. And, and, and why? Because that's the only way we're going to make it going forward. So I want you to go to kpft.org. Don't forget, go to kpft.org and show your support. Show your support and let folks know that you want this kind of information. We have a great program for you today. And I know you're going to enjoy it. And we give you this twice a week. So please, you can get any one of my books as a gift for becoming a member of KPFT. Go to kpft.org. Click that donate button, select Politics Done Right as the show you're supporting, and go into the gift area and select, as I see it, Class Warfare, the only resort to right-wing doom, or you can also get It's Worth It, How to Talk to Your Right-Wing Relatives, Friends, and Neighbors, or go to How to Make America Utopia, Take Away the Economy from Those Who Rigged It. If you get one book, it gives you one particular membership price. Two books, you get a discount. And three books, you get an even better discount. So please consider becoming a member of KPFT. And in the process, you get the gifts of the books. You can get Politics Done Right Mondays through Fridays on Facebook Live at facebook.com slash politics done right. On YouTube Live at politics slash YouTube. Please do not forget to follow me on Twitter for updates. My handle is at Egberto Willis at E-G-B-E-R-T-O-W-I-L-L-I-E-S. You know where I'm going here. Let's get busy. Before you get started, please remember to keep your community radio station in your minds, KPFT in your minds. Talk about it. Tell your friends about it. Tell them you know about this station in town, 90.1 FM Houston, that needs your support, that is there to provide what that nour- nourishment that we need. 713-526-5738. KPFT.org. Visit us online. Contribute online. KPFT. 90.1 FM. You can visit us at kpft.org. Talking about a pandemic, I have another video here that I, I forgot that I needed to uh, show you all. And um, I, I didn't set it up right, so I'm preparing it as we speak. But this is an important video as well. Uh, ah, That is the wrong way to do it, but I'm going to get it right like I just did there. Check this one out. And then lo tomaremos en el otro lado. Aquí tienes amigos míos. How is it that we got to this point where the numbers are what they are? Um, you know, this the, the, this thing we've talked about it a million times. The, how the back, how the, the pandemic became a culture war, but the numbers the, the, you have a poll number here: party identification among unvaccinated Americans. This is from the Kaiser Family Foundation in October. Republicans, sixty percent. Democrats, seventeen percent. Independents, seventeen percent. I, I just you know, it's now almost two years. Just tell me the story. Why is your party? so resistant to following the science. 
Okay, well, thanks, John. I'm actually not a member of either of our nation's two parties. Um, I am registered as an independent wow, uh, and have been for most of my life. Um, but I will say that uh, it was clear from last spring um, or into the winter and spring of 2021 that this was a bipartisan problem. And it's true that the, the actual rate have gone of vaccination have gone up among Democrats and they've gone down. I mean, they have stayed stubbornly the same among Republicans, improving a little on the margins. But it is a serious problem because of misinformation. It's hard to say that this is going to get any better. The administration came to, to power and worked very effectively on the distribution of vaccines and did very quietly attempt um, with a lot of time and energy and resources to get to the community of the unvaccinated through pastors and local press and community leaders. And they try to do it quietly, not from the White House Rose Garden or the, the press briefing room, but to have people in their own communities try to reach the unvaccinated. And it was it was, again, successful on the margins, but not in a material way. And so we're looking at a community of people that have lost people in their community. They've lost relatives. They've lost radio talk show hosts. They've lost yeah. ministers. They know this virus kills them and they refuse to get vaccinated. Uh, at this point, it's very hard to say that trying to educate uh, the public on vaccines and the benefit of them is going to help us um, with regards to Omicron. And it's terrible what this does. Um, people who choose to let themselves get sick or their family and communities get sick and to die of this virus impact everyone, of course. And that's therein lies the problem. How do you spare the cancer patient, the stroke patient, someone get, giving birth to a baby um, with these overrun hospitals, with people who are willing to get this virus? We, and that's a real question, right? With a whole bunch of irresponsible people running around, them holding the resources of the hospital that could hurt people who are getting a heart attack, a stroke or whatever because of the lack of bed, the lack of support. How do you handle that? I think, I, I, I have to be frank here, this part I think needs to be fairly macabre. I think you have to, when somebody comes in, are you vaccinated or not? And I think you have to have cues, cues for the vaccinated and cues for the unvaccinated. It's going to run into some moral problems because people are going to say, what about the guy who drove drunk and got into an accident? Should he go into a different queue? There are going to be a lot of issues like that. Uh, but I would say for this is a special situation, in my humble opinion, that that needs mitigation. I think this is this an important one. One of our... PDR Posse members, one of our supporters, Bruce, sent me a clip uh, from a Jordan Peterson. I hadn't known about Jordan Peterson, but apparently he's a very uh, well-known conservative, What I, someone I have to call right-wing after listening to him, and not only right-wing, but disingenuous. I want to play this, because messaging is everything, and what we have to do is make sure, first of all, to fight the lies and the messages that come from the right, number one, numero uno, but numero dos, we have to have the answers to the truth, but not only the truth, to what makes us a better people. I want you to listen to this, and then we'll take it on the other side. 
if the postmodernists were compassionate and they were using that as the default aim in their life, let's say, because they don't have any other aim because of their postmodern relativism, you'd have to accept the compassion idea. But because they're ignoring the historical reality that the doctrines that they're trying to put into practice were murderous beyond belief, then I can't accept the argument that it's compassion that's driving. Nietzsche knew, for example, and he wrote about this in his notebooks in Will to Power, that the nihilistic doctrines that would emerge in the aftermath of the demolition of the theological and philosophical substructure of the West that he associated with the revelation of the death of God would produce a form of political catastrophe. And he identified it specifically, believe it or not, with communism. And that was back in like 1850, 1860. I can't believe he did it. And that that would kill tens to hundreds of millions of people in the 20th century. And it's certainly not obvious that the postmodernists that, let's say, infest the modern universities have been willing to learn anything at all from 20th century history. Not least the lesson that the egalitarian and equity-oriented doctrines that they're attempting to foist upon young people in in, in this cult-like educational manner are anything but murderous. Anyways, here's what Nietzsche said. For the man be delivered from revenge... That is, for me, the bridge to the highest hope and a rainbow after long storms. The tarantulas, of course, would have it otherwise. Quote, what justice means to us is precisely that the world will be filled with the storms of our revenge. End quote. Thus they speak to each other. We shall wreak vengeance and abuse on all whose equals we are not. Thus do the tarantula hearts vow. And will to equality shall henceforth be the name for virtue. And against all that has power, we want to raise our clamor. You preachers of equality, the tyrant mania of impotence clamors thus out of you for equality. Your most secret ambition is to be tyrants and shroud themselves, shroud yourselves in words of virtue. The intellectuals in the academy look out at the world and they notice that there are others who are respected perhaps more than they are. And there are others that have perhaps more than they are and that goods are inequitably distributed beyond them. And the consequence of that is the emergence of the tremendous resentment that needs spoke of. The desire of that resentment is to pull down the hierarchies by criticizing them. That's the motivation. Well, that's what I've been thinking about more intensely than usual for about the last eight months. I haven't been able to figure out any way out of the logical argument that I just presented to you. And if that argument is correct, then that's a diagnosis for why, what's happening in the political correct world and actually what its motivations are. And I believe that my argument is it's accurate and it's destroying the universities and it's invading the rest of our society. And the idea that there's something good behind it, that's a dangerous idea. I think what's behind it is exactly what Nietzsche noted 150 years ago. It's resentment and the demand for power disguising itself most reprehensibly as compassion. And it's time for the mask of that to be taken off and things set straight. We'd spend I would have to consider Jordan the biggest artist of projection. Because if you take a listen to what he said, let me, let me first tell you what I did. I, went to, I saw this piece late last night, and then I said, you know, I had to do something with it, and then I incorporated it into the newsletter for today. And I want to re- I read parts of what I said. I said, those of you who have been a part of Politics Done Right, the Politics Done Right family, know that one of my most important tenets is keeping the conversation open on all sides. One of our supporters sent the link, that link that you just saw. Uh, Jordan Peterson is discussing postmodernism. And by the way, remember when he's talking about the postmodernists or these people, he's really talking about progressive left-wingers, folks like myself and others who believe in good social structures that help all people. But anyway... Uh, so he sent me this. And if you notice, they're always constantly trying to connect 
us with Marxism, communism, socialism. They want to scare people, right? So that is their intent. Scare people so that those who support policies that are social in nature to help people have a better life can. They want to keep that select few in power. So I wrote, I am just an engineer turned political activist determined to do my part to empower the masses to claim their worth to this society, which in the case of America was denied most from its inception. Most people from the inception of America, they were never designed to have. In other words, the society wasn't made for them. I do not traffic in high-minded platitudes of little consequence to the reality of most, which is what he just did. He used a lot of words, but he could not tell you one thing other than saying, I hate the left, and what the left want to do is tyrannical. I don't know where he got that from, but we'll continue. I find Peterson to be one who uses many words, some that many will have to research given the state of our educational system, but one who has nothing specific to say. His disdain for those who acknowledge or pass evil as they propose or propose not just atonement but material resolution is not just appalling but disqualifying. You know, he's out there saying that what we on the left want is tyrannical. If you take a look at Cuba, you take a look at Venezuela, you take a look at China, you take a look at the U.S. Soviet republics when it was the USSR, now Russia, you can see that everything that the left talks about is tyrannical and hurts people, kill people. He even said that Nietzsche said that if you follow the policies pretty much of what we believe in, that somehow millions would die, right? But wait a minute. In order to create this social construct that we have that actually is nothing, (laughs) well, the economic system that we have, which to form did what again? It annihilated the, 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 the native people of the land. In other words, it used them, enslaved them, it killed them, it robbed them, it did all of that. The capitalist system. I'm not talking about people, the individual, which I think most people are good. Capitalists, of course, are generally uh, what I consider uh, many of the, the real, well, the billion type, billionaire type capitalists. Most of them I, I really consider psychopaths. If you take a look at what they did to acquire what they have, it was always on the back of somebody, right? In other words, we got rid of it. Indians, we took their land. We wanted to produce cotton. We wanted to do all these things with the land. We brought in slaves. The slaves, we worked on the back of the slaves that we bought from Africa and brought over here. And then, in order to get other things throughout the world, we invaded countries. We went ahead and take the, took the natural resources from other countries that we are not deserving of. All these things we do. All the things that he is talking about that the left would accomplish because look at Cuba, look at Venezuela, look at Russia. He forgets. Projection is dangerous. Look, I am an American. I love this country. And I want this country to live up to the expectation of those people who have believed the rhetoric that those of us that are foreign, naturalized U.S. citizens that we have learned before we got here. We learned about the, the land of milk and honey. We learned about democracy. We didn't learn in it. We didn't realize some of the things that weren't yet realized. Okay, so continue. So he goes ahead and he talks about the, the, the left pretty much being tyrannical. But he forgets all the things that he says are the things that we as a people have done unto others from 
genocide in America, and it's not only America, America genocide here. We're talking from from the North America to Central America to South America. Genocide. What else have we done? Enslaved from North America to Central America to South America. And we're gonna and we have the gall now to believe that somehow we are omnipotent and we are the ones who are the bastion of morality and cannot discuss evil and good. The, the, those of us on the left, come on. So I continue. Peterson attempts to disqualify the left by asserting they are devout Marxists. He then implies that the policies they want have only been t- uh, tried by tyrannical states. One, of course, he fails to roll to note that tyrannical states, most on the left would like to be, most of us kind of admire the social states within Scandinavia, the Scandinavian countries. Of course, my personal belief is that the Scandinavian countries have not gone far enough because they still have an economic system whose base. In other words, if you if you're selling stock into something, it means that you if you, you you sell stock into something, it's not really free enterprise. It's capitalism. And this type of capitalism, what does it do? It actually there are a few people who profit from the worth, intellect and labor of others by doing absolutely nothing just by having capital. Much of that capital not ever have been earned. Let me give an example. Let's say Texas. Texas is a huge land with tons of ranches and humongous amount of land. And a few people have stolen that land and they have built their capital. They have built their industries on top of having stolen that land. But we have somebody else who live next to that land that's in abject poverty. Well, who is really worthy? Who is really the one that is deserving? You know, those are very important questions to ask. How proper is it? Is might more important than honor? There are a lot of things that we have to think about in that regards, right? But again, so Scandinavian countries is what most leftists would be happy with. I want more. I want a true egalitarian society where we have people, uh, people have commensurate with their real worth. Are you, are you willing to work hard to produce something? Then you should get the rewards. You should reap the rewards of the hard work that you have. As it works in society right now, a few will be invited to be into the fold. A few will be invited to allow their worth to be worth something more than just what some what the average American worker gets. But you have to be invited. I discuss a whole lot of that in my book. It's worth it, uh, or rather, in my book, um, uh, How to Make America Utopia. You know, a lot of people think this is a meritocracy. America is not a meritocracy. You have to be invited to be meritorious. I explain that as well in my book, How to Make America Utopia. Anyhow. So we go ahead. There is one phrase that he used that is the coup de grace, the expectation to instill the fear of left into its listeners. He says, resentment and the demand for power disguising itself most reprehensibly as compassion. So he says, we care about people because we want power. We want people to have good health care because we want power. We want people to have good, good, good um, uh, their kids taken care of, good insurance, being able to live after they retire because we want power. And what do they want? What do those on the right want by denying giving people the things that they're deserving of? After all, those that are the haves, the wealthy ones, 
It's not their morality that gained them their wealth. It's not their ability that gained them their, their wealth. It's not their aptitude that gained them their wealth. Many a times that over amount of wealth that they have was garnered because of a system designed by a few who put a bias towards some, a very few. A bias to success for a few. We can discuss that in detail if anybody wants to go further on that. So let's, let's remember that. It's not about resentment and it's not about the, what the left wants would make us tyrannical because a lot of the things that the right talks about us being tyrannical are all the things under their tenets was done. You know, we're so fearful that those crazy other people on the other side are going to use the nuclear bomb. There's only one country we know for a fact that has the gall, that has the wherewithal to say, I will use this thing on other human beings. And that's why, how do we know that? Because we did it. Uh, we have to be cautious. We have to be honest. We have to be humble. We have to remember before we start pointing fingers and attacking, we have to atone for what we have done and not try to sugarcoat it. We were the ones who used the atomic bomb. We are the ones who enslaved many. We are the ones who uh, committed genocide to take the land of another. We did all of that. There's not, a, there's nothing, I mean, and by the way, it's not intrinsic to this one group of people that came to America. This is done all over the world. So I'm not trying to be a moralist here. I'm trying to be an atoner and saying, if we really want to be honest, if we really want to be successful, if we really want to do what needs to be done, all we really need to do is say, we are at status quo now. And what we will do is do our best without collapsing a system to atone for the deeds. And the right has no desire for that. Their objection to critical race theory, which, it, which is intended to keep people dumb with a false sense of superiority that's not there. Their objection to empowering people, their objection to giving people the social needs, that is for one and only one reason, to keep a small amount in power and to have an army of the uninformed that ensure they stay in power. Remember, people, let's understand these things in detail. Hal H. Harris is a writer, but he's not just any writer. When Medium announced its writer's challenge, he read about it, the cast prices, and esteemed panel of judges. He quickly committed to winning the damn thing. And you know what? He won the damn thing. Senor Hal Harris, how are you doing today, my friend? I'm doing all right, sir. Living the dream on this Sunday. And thank you so much for having me on your show. Well, look, let me tell you, any medium, medium is a huge place. And for you to, to, for you to make yourself write that well that you became the winner of this award i think it speaks well about your writing tell me a little bit about yourself so my name is holly h harris i'm the founder of established in 1865 where we explore black personhood if there was a quote that describes my writing it will be one that i wrote in regards to exploring the career of sade how do black people live and love in the west a civilization that did not have our living loving in mind when white people created it through the triangle trade and slavery so with that approach I write established in 1865 with a disciplined and cultivated disinterest in the inner lives of white people, and also as a way to create and be a custodian for black folklore and black political thought. 
Now, you are a member of a, a, a recently created group called Writers and Editors of Color. And I became a member of the group because I, I tell you what, I met a whole lot of inspirational people, uh, people that I've learned from in just listening to their stories. And in, in doing so, I realized that there is an unexploited for, I mean, there's an unexploited big bastion of writers that many times are ignored. And in your case, you kind of got yourself above the crop and winning this award. But there are so many good writers out there that simply go uh, unnoticed. And, and I said when I joined that group, I wanted to do my very infinitesimal point to make a difference with, uh, with, that, with that group of folk. Because, uh, like I said, it's been inspirational. Well, one, your contributions to the cohort have not been small. It's actually been very large and really just our writings out to the world. Because, again, a lot of woke is from the leadership of Allison Gaines, who you interviewed earlier. And she literally was just DMing writers of color and medium at random. Like, hey, I want you to be part of this community. Hey, I want to do this together. And just as part of the cohort, a community of Black writers rooted in Black liberation, but coming from different perspectives former financiers, graduate students, me, a leader, uh, a trainer of school leaders by day, when I put on my superhero cape, a writer of Black personhood at night. You are doing such an important part of number one, getting a work out there into the world. And number two, really promoting that mindset that we do need to own our work. So that way we don't have to compromise on our political vision when we write. Well, you know what? I'm, I'm going to tell you, listening to a young person like, like you, um, uh, it, it, inside of woke, that it, it just metastasized in the mind how our new generation is out there uh, taking command, getting away from a society, a, a sort of a capitalist society that monopolizes just on your intellect and not give anything back. So, look, thank you for being here. Now, you, I, I wanted to ask you a whole lot of questions, right? You won $10,000 in this particular, uh, in, in the Medium Award. And, I, and jokingly, I asked you, hey, what did you do with the $10,000? Please tell our audience your answer. I put that money towards my son's daycare. Daycare is about $1,000 a month. And therefore, that provided us a way just to really subsidize that to make sure that he's getting the socialization education that he needs which is why I'm also excited about the daycare subsidies that's inherent in the Build Back Better bill for Joe Biden, that that's going to significantly bring down the cost of daycare and allow more American families to keep more money in their pocket and therefore provide a sense of stimulus to the average American family. Now, interestingly, Hal, um, you won $10,000. You were able to do that. So you got your, to put it bluntly, you got that, that necessary assistance that, that to, to help out. I mean, daycare is very expensive in this country. Many other countries have subsidies, or in fact, it's a, part of their, it's a part of their social safety net to ensure that children are, are well taken care of. We as a country always preach that we believe, in, uh, we believe in life. We believe in taking care of our own. Yet we never have these policies that support that. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your writings on these issues? So the main reason why we do not have like a daycare policy is because whiteness does not believe in distributing its wealth to black people. Anti-blackness is the foundation of this nation. And blackness, what a lot of people think, is not the response to whiteness. Whiteness is the response to the blackness that has always been here on the American continent and has always been to what white people consider 
the antithesis of the American experiment. We are not. We are the necessary completion of the American experiment. So Heather McGee, who wrote The Some of Us, wrote a lot about this, that in any sort of policy in which will benefit the entire nation, white people politically and historically have refused to do it because they believe it will benefit black people who they do not see as who do, who they do not see as deserving. A lot of my writing is number one, ignoring the inner lives of white people as they make their decisions. I'm not interested in the emotional contortions or the self-rationalizations they make for their behavior. I'm only interested in what they do and how what they do impacts black personhood. And then talking about black personhood, how we live and love in the West and how we construct lives of joy of meaning and our folklore within that crucible. Now, I, I think there's something I, I want you to touch on Heather McGee because Heather McGee wrote a very important book that became, I, I believe it was a bestseller because she actually showed the irrationality of, uh, of many in the majority population, the white population hurting themselves because they think supporting policies that support us all because it supports people that look like you and me uh, they would rather go without than to see any benefits to, to, to put it bluntly, some of the folks who actually built the country. Mm-hmm. I would not say, Eduardo, that it's irrational, that white people have actually very rational reasons for denying themselves a part of the pie that would help everyone by helping black personhood. It is because, again, whiteness is the response to blackness. And as Frank Walderson wrote in Afro-Pessimism, that Black suffering is the tonic that helps to maintain white mental health. They have to see us going without, so that way they feel secure in their place in the American hierarchy. So it's a price that they are willing to pay. And that is also deeply rooted in a lot of how slavery evolved in the South in the antebellum period, that as long as we have slavery here, at least the poorest white person could never be a slave, and they can claim that sort of liberty to experience kinship and community, even with plantation owners. It is rooted in power. And what is especially devious about how America was founded was that power was encoded not in class, but in this made-up thing called race, which does not exist biologically or genetically. So again, white people, it's not irrational. They're not behaving irrationally when they refuse to share the wealth of the nation with Black people. They're doing it for very rational reasons to protect both their power and their psychological health. Now, uh, let me let me do a little challenge in here, because I we talk a lot about this on on politics done right. And what you've articulated, first of all, uh, is is we've we've expressed it a little bit differently. And I want you to help me out here. Um, There's this phrase that people use. I will tolerate anything because at least I am not black. That's one one way some people look at things. Another thing is what the uh, former. Johnson had to say, uh, and I think you know that that phrase about I, I, I can I can take a dollar away from anyone as long as I'm doing something. To, uh, do you remember that phrase at all from Johnson? I do not. OK, what Johnson and I don't. <laughs> the reason I asked is that I actually forgot the exact phrase. But what he said is that uh, he could pretty much get a white person to do anything. He could steal a dollar or anything from them by just putting them in the black context, if you will. In other words, to say, well, at least you're not black. The president, Johnson, said that. And, and in effect, that sort of, a, that sort of correlates with what, what you're saying, still being in existence with a large portion of that population today. After all, 70-something 70 thousand voted for Donald Trump, for Donald Trump right? Explain, explain that. Yes, exactly. I mean, there's really not so much to explain. President Johnson, being from the South, 
being a Southern senator, he understood his constituency better than everyone else. And he was willing, honestly, just to use that knowledge of his constituency to rise to power. And when he supported the passage of the Civil Rights Act, he also knew what Democrats would be giving up for a generation that, oh, the moment I sign this, all those Southern white Democrats are going to be Republicans. And he made that choice to do so anyway, due to pressure from the civil rights movement. Again, it's like we have to understand that the way to the work of politics in this nation is not to black personhood, Democrat versus Republican, it's white people, white supremacy versus black personhood. And that white supremacy, while it has its permanent home in the Republican Party, you do tend to see it in a lot of leftist politics and the Democrats as well. You do see it in the race blindness of Bernie Sanders. You do see this in a lot of Rose Twitter who emphasize a class versus race proposition and in a way also choose to silence the voices of black personhood that would uplift the entire party. You have that conversation right now, for example, of the Secretary of State, Pete, I don't know what his last name is, replacing Pete Kamala Buttigieg. Harris on Pete Buttigieg, replacing Kamala Harris on the Democratic presidential ticket or vice presidential ticket in 2024, despite Black people being instrumental to Joe Biden defeating Bernie Sanders in the Democratic primary. We are seen as the bargaining chip of the Democrats and the Republicans. They would rather just see us silence or they'll just honestly see us dead based off their current behavior and statements. So it's this constant climate of animus that political Black people have to navigate. And Zelina Maxwell talks a lot about that in her book, The End of White Politics, how we are that bargaining chip and how it damages democratic politics. Well, I mean, uh, dem- let, let me let me give you a, a caveat here, because I just wrote about this a few weeks ago. And that is, I said, uh, watch the similarity between the Affordable Care Act and the Build Back Better. In other words, it was never Republicans who actually stopped the actuation of these particular policies. We always had the stooge from the plutocracy to come in and do it. Now, you you added a the racial component to it. Now, I you, you said something very important, and I and I think people need to understand that because I am uh, I a lot of a lot of people would hear what you say and and consider you a black radical. And by the way, let me be clear here. I don't consider you a black radical. I consider you someone that is plain spoken and not only plain spoken, but don't bite the words. I mean, I, I say a lot of I say a lot of things differently, but you don't bite your words. But that remove that does not remove the truity from what what you're saying. And here here is a, an important issue. When it comes to. Uh, the way we take a look at Joe Manchin, we take a look at cinema. We know their population. They're, they're not from a, a state or represent a group of people that are mostly minorities, uh, but still they are the ones that are willing to object to policies that would better the people in their states. My question to you then is the following. Is that, in this case, is that anti-Black or is that pro-protecting the plutocracy? It is definitely anti-Black because any protection of the American plutocracy is going to be anti-Black because of the nature of capital. We were brought to this nation to be the raw materials of capital. Our skins, our scarred backs, Egberto. They were used to finance mortgages. They were used to harvest sugar, used to harvest tobacco, used to harvest rice, used to harvest cotton. 
And that position has really not changed where white supremacy draws its power and its money from Black personhood. Now, with Manchin, he is definitely anti-Black. And that's I actually wrote about that in one of my newsletters, Black on Both Sides. He lives in an idiosyncratic Southern state. It's the only Southern state without a significant Black population due to both the history of the Civil War in which Western Virginia, very mountainous, not really made for plantations, right? Separated from Virginia to remain a slaveholding state in the Union. And then over time as well, right? The Black population of the state has severely been reduced. So you like to hear a lot about coals and stuff like that. But again, Black people are the defenders of democracy. We have not been a majority or a significant minority in that Southern state. And that does reflect Joe Manchin's politics, in which case he feels comfortable as a Democrat saying racially coded things like means testing for stimulus funds and such like that. So to me, there is anti-Blackness and whatever whiteness does, because whiteness is a response to Blackness. And you cannot consider white behavior and white culture and white politics without considering how it's completely arrayed against Black personhood. Now, let me ask you a question. How do we work toward solving this issue as one country? So I guess to me, it was like, I have two answers for that. One, I do consider myself an Afro-pessimist. So to me, I'm not sure if this is going to be something that we can really permanently resolve, that there's never going to be a day unless we magically get reparations where we can say we have solved the race problem of America. The race problem of America here since 2019 and it will probably be here to America no longer exists. So it's something that we do have to manage. I think to me, people always ask, like, what does allyship look like? And my argument is that we should not be looking for allyship. We should be looking for Black leadership to solve the nation's problems. Because when Black people, when we do get the solutions that we want, it uplifts everyone. The Civil Rights Act was not just simply for Black people. It also promoted more equality for women for our Latinx population, for our indigenous population. And then many of the freedom struggles that we have here in this nation is configured on the Black freedom struggles. Furthermore, and again, this goes back to what Charles Blow made, and he made this point in his latest book, um, The Devil You Know, A Black Power Manifesto. There has to be a way to achieve Black power and sever it from white allyship. White allyship will always hold Black progress to white redemption. We will do this if we feel good, we will do this if it frees us from the shackles of race. Black people should not consider the inner lives of white people when advocating and agitating for what it means. So Charles Blow offered a novel solution that every Black person, no matter where they come from, African-American immigrants or descendant of immigrants, should move down South, form a majority of the population in the South. <laughs> I, I saw therefore, that, yes. yes. And therefore, we would have sent enough representatives and senators and control enough governors, mansions, and state houses to force conversation on our agenda, which will be equitable school funding, which would be rebuilding Black infrastructure, which will be reparations. To me, those are solutions that I like, because again, it foregoes the story of white redemption, which is not a story Black person is interested in. We just want to get free. And to me, that provides the most expedient way of doing that, and a sense of reverse, a reverse, um, a reverse great migration. You know, you are one of the most plain-spoken uh persons that I've, I think I've interviewed on this type of issue altogether. In other words, uh, I remember in, in some of the discussions, you said one of the things that you don't allow is for, for, for the statements that you want to say to be edited out. And what I told you and I told everybody else is on politics done right, everybody's point of view is heard. And that is on, not only is everybody's point of view is heard, 
but I, I want every point of view to be listened to. Um, I have a very large white audience. Uh, what would you tell this particular audience of mine as far as how to, uh, you don't believe in allies. Exactly what do you believe in and what position should they take? I believe in black power and I believe that black power should be the leadership of the democratic politics. Because again, our track record shows and when black people do achieve their specific policy aims, it benefits all Americans. And what I would again say to your white allies is like, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about what they think about me unless they're going to like cash at me some money. In which case, like, <laughs> I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to, I'm not going to change my view, but I would prefer $100 over $50. You know it's like? I, I, I got a seven day here, a thousand a month. That's a lot of money. To burn. So, but what I would say though, is that when people ask what justice and rep and equity looks like. Have we had an all-Black Senate? Have we had an all-Black House of Representatives? Have we had a Black president? Have we had all three at the same time? No. Then we've got some work to do in regards to writing the scales of history towards justice, because we've had all-white federal governments and all-white state governments for centuries and centuries of American history. And when I focus Black personhood, there is enough political diversity within Black personhood that is also concerned for our liberation, that we can have those robust debates. Think of woke. We have Black socialists in woke. We have Black Marxists in woke. We have Black capitalists in woke. I don't know where cryptocurrency falls in any of that. <laughs> I don't, I don't know understand either. crypto. Yeah, but we have Black cryptocurrency fanatics in woke. And you see us come together because we all believe in Black freedom. The Black capitalists will make an argument hey, we need to invest in stocks and blah, 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 and reinvest in communities, we will be free that way. You have the Marxists. We need to overthrow the, the, the bourgeoisie and the loop and proletariat rise. But that's how we get free. You have Black socialists. We need to make sure we have a more distributive we will get free. And you have the people like Black cryptocurrency. We need to invest in Bitcoin. We'll get free. I don't know how, but at the same time, we all come together with that common goal. And ultimately, the solutions that we're going to generate they're going to benefit everyone. And if a white ally has a hard problem following Black leadership or feeling they need to speak for Black leadership, that's them evincing their anti-Blackness. And it's like, I ain't got nothing to say to you. Okay, let me, let me, let me now do a, a challenge as far as pragmatism and the ability to get things done. Um, uh, how do you think power would be attained i mean i kurt i mean uh, blow said blow talked about black people moving to the south and becoming a majority in the south um whatever we whatever the, the possibilities are uh black people in this country make up about 13 percent. that is a mathematical reality of, of black people in this country right mm -hmm. um and earlier in our discussion you said something that uh that that for anybody who wants to listen to your commentary and believe that uh, that you are a racist as opposed to you've lived through uh, the American reality, have to first an analyze a very, one of the very first statements that you made, which was race was an invented thing. Whiteness was an invented thing. But that invented thing has caused a whole lot of harm. Now, uh, my my thing is. The practical, I, I, I believe in, in, in how do we attain practical solutions, pragmatic solutions. And one of the things that I do in, in trying to put people together, et cetera, is to ask the question, 
how are we going to get it done? Um, Blow had that idea and I read the idea and I chuckled because I, the number 13% still came to mind, right? Mm-hmm. So um, what's the alternative to, uh, I, I, I'll be frank, I believe, what, what I believe is everybody should be uh, treated equitably. Everybody should have equal power. And I absolutely believe reparations are uh, in order, not only in order, but represent rep- reparations are owed and we need to make, create the, balance the imbalance that we have here that was created by white supremacy. I believe all of that. Practically speaking, how is that attained? I think exactly what you're saying, that reparations needs to be the central political policy of Democrats. So I hear what you're saying about pragmatism. 13%. No, keep that number in your head. 13%. I get what you're hearing about us only being 13% of the population. But again, reparations, which is one of the big policy of Black goals, would benefit this entire nation no matter where you fall yes, in your political beliefs. And white allies understand that. Like if you are a black capitalist, or if you're a white ally who believes in capitalism, reparations will be continued, sustained stimulus into the black community that provides business opportunities for the entire nation. If you are a socialist, a white ally who is a socialist, reparations will provide that redistribution of wealth, which will close so many of the gaps that socialism would want to close. If you are a Marxist, reparations will return so much capital and thus resources to the Lupin proletariat, that exclusively and perpetually oppressed class, right, where that does not get to control the capital. And if you're in crypto, a lot of Black people will probably buy Bitcoin with reparations. Again, <laughs> I, don't under- I don't understand crypto. I don't want I'm making fun of it, but it is something that, you know, as a thinker, it completely befuddles me. So again, the pragmatic solution for white allies is to nurture the Black leadership and to get their other allies to do so as well. It's not our job to manage white perception of Black leadership. It is the white allies' job to manage white perception of Black leadership and then make sure that they're following the lead of the Black leaders who are doing the hard work locally at the state level and at the federal level as well. So I think to me, it was like, it's a mix. Reparations is that pragmatic radical solution, but the radicalism are the white allies actually leading in and making sacrifices for Black leadership. Okay, so I mean, I, I, think, I think there's some, con- some convergence there because uh, you, you brought the, the white allies right back into the fold, right? Mm-hmm. I did, I did. And again, it was like, I, I try not to spend too much time thinking about their inner lives and, and such like that. To me, it's just a question of power and influence, what we can and what we cannot do with the resources here. 13%, yeah, that might be a small numerical number in proportion to 100, but we've also been here for about 400 years. So to me, I think less about the percentage and more about the historical power that Black personhood has in the United States. Because normally if 13%, was a number that white supremacy did not feel threatened by, they would not be working so hard to stamp out all of our accomplishments. Well, you know, I'm, I'm, we're coming close to the close, but I want to give a little, a, a quick little soliloquy here uh, to tell you a little bit about my thoughts, right? Uh, first of all, when you acknowledge that there isn't a race, agreed. When you acknowledge the, the issue about white supremacy, agreed. Um, I, I take a slightly different stance than many others. And I'm, um, and it, it, it even goes beyond Bernie Sanders' stance, a whole, a whole lot of, you know, Blacks, or not a whole lot. Some Black people had a, 
a particular issue with um, with Bernie Sanders. And, and, and I'm going to ask you to comment on this before the last question. But I think it's all a game. OK, I think there were a small number. Well, not I think I know there was a small number of people who created the nation. And in order to hold on to power, created the gradation of people. And in creating the gradation of people, uh, yes, was born white supremacy. Because, again, remember that fact that, well, remember, you ain't black, so uh, you're okay. My contention is, and this is why I give everybody the benefit of the doubt. I give uh, The reason I give everybody the benefit of the doubt is I first try to educate. Uh, if, if, if you grew up in... The, in a white society where you saw yourself as different than others, and just like if you grew up in a black society that that was meant that made you believe you were inferior, or you grew up in a black society that uh, you know whatever the case is, you were codified by your environment. I grew up in a, in Central America. I came over here with with I came over here with beliefs that I, I didn't. To put it bluntly, I didn't know how crazy things could be over here in America. I'll, I'll, I'll simply be blunt about that. OK, so so my contention is and, and again, I am not asking you to be uh, the way I am. We, we I think we are both needed. I put it bluntly. In fact, I learn a lot from people like yourself. Um, I want to first educate everybody. When I say educate, I want to give people the benefit of the doubt. I want, and after I give them the benefit, and I don't think too many people have done that. And, and let me let me point out something that, and I came from something we discussed in woke today. I asked everybody in Atlanta, those of you that are working in Atlanta, please take a look at the leaders of Atlanta, and let's take a look at who's hurting uh, the you know black folk in Atlanta. I also asked folks to do the same thing. Uh, we want reparations. How many of the CBC is out there fighting for reparations? You are, mm-hmm. but our leaders aren't, you know? So when we talk about black leadership, the black leadership that I would like to see are young folk like you who actually know what's happening, but a lot of what we have and what we've had have failed the entire country, not just us. Because as you said, if we do well, the whole country does well. So I want your thought on that. And the last question I always ask is, what would you have liked me to ask you that I didn't? So to respond to like your first question, I think that the difference like with me educating people, I don't see myself as an educator. Again, Mm -hmm. my vision for my writing is that I'm a creator and a custodian of the stories of Black personhood. I want a world where blackness will never perish from the earth. And to me, it's my job is to write the articles, to write the books, to find and mentor the writers that are writing our folklore. So that when we have our stories of survival and living and living in the West, that I can pass down to my baby boy. And I was like, hey, look, look what this generation did. And let me teach you about what the previous generations did. If white people really want to contribute to that and read my stuff and educate it and be educated and, you know, put some coins in my pocket. I'm fine with that, but I'm also impartial to that outcome. And that's what really allows me to wake up every morning with excitement and joy, releasing myself from the burden of having to educate and thus redeem white people, and then doing the work of preserving Black culture, no matter where I find it in the world. So I guess to me, it was like, again, the response to the first question is just about that. 
and again, just the second thing is just, you know, what I wish you would ask about me, um, asking more about how I won the Medium Writers Challenge, because from the day they announced it, I said I was going to win it. I won it. And there was a lot of intentionality about me just really writing that crap and hopefully trying to parlay that to a book deal. If any of your listeners have a book deal or can give me a book deal, one, <laughs> I'm mad you have, one, I'm mad you haven't gotten in touch with me yet. Two, I forgive you. Three, DM me so we can talk about getting my books out to the world. But yeah, I would love to talk more about how I won that challenge. Al H. Harris, winner of the humongous medium writer's challenge, $10,000. Look, it was my pleasure to have you on Politics Done Right. And look, please, please keep that passion. We need people who are unabashedly bold in the way they speak. We don't all have to speak the same. We don't have to all believe the same, but we sure as hell need to make sure that we are all heard. Thank you so kindly for being on Politics Done Right. Thank you for having us, and I'll catch you at the next welcome meeting, Alberto. Absolutely. You can get any one of my books as a gift for becoming a member of KPFT. Go to kpft.org, click that donate button, select Politics Done Right as the show you're supporting, and go into the gift area and select As I See It, Class Warfare, The Only Resort to Right-Wing Doom, or you can also get It's Worth It, How to Talk to Your Right-Wing Relatives, Friends, and Neighbors, or go to How to Make America Utopia, Take Away the Economy from Those Who Rigged It. If you get one book... It gives you one particular membership price, two books, you get a discount, and three books, you get an even better discount. So please consider becoming a member of KPFT, and in the process, you get the gifts of the books. You can get Politics Done Right Mondays through Fridays on Facebook Live at facebook.com slash politicsdoneright, on YouTube Live at politicsdoneright.com slash YouTube. Please do not forget to follow me on Twitter for updates. My handle is at Egberto Willis at E-G-B-E-R-T-O-W-I-L-L-I-E-S. That's it, folks. My name is Egberto Willis. This is Politics and Right, and you know how I end this, baby. I am what? Out. Welcome to Politics Done Right. I am your host, Egberto Willis. This is a progressive program that will take the mystery out of politics. This is the program that will encourage you to make sure government becomes we, 